Well, good morning again. If I didn't get to say it earlier, welcome to Grace. My name is Stephen, assistant pastor here. Uh, Dave and Chris, our senior pastor, and Chris, our worship pastor, they're, they're coming back. But, but in their stead, man, I, I've enjoyed listening to Maury last week and the team and Compton and the guys today. We, 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 uh, we are blessed with uh, many great servants, volunteers at our church who, who give up a lot of time and spend a lot of energy uh, preparing for Sunday morning. So I, I just want to say thank you. I, I, I get paid to do this stuff. It's fun. Uh, but those guys, they, they give it their time. We, we are really grateful. Um, and some of those guys are about to go off to college. I know Compton and Jeb, I think, that was, I think that's it for the college-bound guys. But uh, make, sure you, make sure you say thanks to, to the whole team. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open them up to the book of Romans, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the benches you're sitting on. You can reach down in front of you and grab a Bible. On those Bibles, we're on page 949. It had to be one of the hardest days in Jesus' life. Jesus had turned and he had set his face towards Jerusalem where he knew what awaited him. It was a cross, it was a death, it was separation from the Father where the sins of the world would be laid upon him. And he is traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples, 12 men who he had poured his life into for the last three years. They were the ones who would take up his mission, who would build the church. And here they were going to Jerusalem, and Jesus overheard a fight break out of his 12 disciples arguing and debating about who is the greatest. If that wasn't bad enough, James and John, their mother, came and began to speak for them, saying, Jesus, whenever you enter your kingdom and you're on your throne, can, can my boys sit at your right and your left hand? How embarrassing, right? I mean, you're a disciple, and here comes your mom. Oh, mom. But here he was, surrounded by disciples who were just arguing, bickering back and forth. And finally, they make it to Jerusalem through the triumphal entry, and they're in the upper room. And you almost cut the tension with a knife that's so thick because Jesus is there with his 12 disciples and they realize there are no servants about. The meal was already prepared. No servants were around. And they were all ready except they weren't washed. Their feet were filthy. And none of the disciples who just finished arguing about who was greatest wanted to be the least among them to wash their feet. It had to be one of the hardest days of Jesus' life in that room with his disciples, knowing he was sitting at a table with one who would betray him, one who would deny him, and all the others who would abandon him. He knew what awaited him that night as he would be arrested and beaten and the next day crucified. And even though that was going through Jesus' mind, even though he was experiencing that, in John chapter 17, we're given Jesus' prayer on that day where Jesus is praying for his disciples that though they would abandon him, that God would protect them. And then in John chapter 17, there's this beautiful passage where Jesus prays not only for his disciples, but he prays for you and me in a very specific way. Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's us that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So on the hardest day of Jesus' life, the day that he was arrested, he was going to be betrayed, abandoned, Jesus' last prayer was for the unity of the body of Christ, that we all in this room, in this congregation, and across the world, the people of God, would be united as one. This would be a sign to the world that God had sent Jesus into the world, a sign that Jesus' testimony was true. But we also see from the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, and as we read the epistles, that unity is hard, hard work. What are the epistles? What are the letters in the New Testament except Paul and the other apostles trying to tell the church, all right, this is how we have to get along. This is what it means to be unified. In fact, as we've been going through the book of Romans chapter 14, that's been the topic. Paul is realizing that we have a diverse body. We have different races. We have different, we have different nationalities. We have different socioeconomic classes, different, different political affiliations, all coming together in, under one roof. And Paul said, listen, in Romans chapter 14, the first part, he says, listen, you're going to have different opinions. You're going to have different ideas about things, but don't pass condemnation on your brothers and sisters for your different beliefs. Then later on in chapter 14, he builds on this picture and this, this, this uh, admonition for unity when he says, in fact, don't, don't just not pass condemnation, but don't put a stumbling block in front of other people. And now as we enter into chapter 15 of Romans, Paul begins to speak of unity of the body of Christ in broader terms about how we might be one as he and the Father and Jesus and the Father are one. So let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. 
be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how your spirit uses your word to work in our hearts. So Father, we pray now that through uh, expounding of this text, through the preaching of your word, that your spirit be at work. Father, where we have sinned, may there be uh, conviction. Father, may your spirit lead us to repentance. Father, where we are broken, may there be an encouragement. Father, as we hear your word proclaimed, and as we leave this place, may our heart's desire be for the unity of your church, so that all the nations may proclaim your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this text in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, Paul is making a much more general statement about the unity of the body of Christ. In fact, I think we see three different things. What we see is the work of unity. What must be done to obtain unity and how is unity maintained? Then he speaks about the foundation of unity. Why is it uh, that we need to be unified? And then he speaks of the goal of unity. So we're going to march through these three different topics today. The work of unity, the foundation of unity, and the goal of unity. We see the work of unity in the first two verses where Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul tells us that if we are strong in the faith, if we are mature in the faith, that we have an obligation to help those who are less mature, to help those who are weak. This, this is not a suggestion. This is not an option. This is an obligation, something that we must do to come alongside those who are new to the faith, those who are young in their faith, those who are immature in their faith, and, and to lift them up. As I was reading this passage this week, I thought of a very physical example of this. I, I, I think there comes a time in, in every man's life and they realize they were no longer the athlete they were in high school. Um, unfortunately, that, that happened to me like 10 years ago. Shouldn't happen that early. Uh, but I, I was reminded of, the, of something that happened. It's probably the most embarrassing lie, story of my life. So I want to share it with you because this, this is what we do here, right? Uh, I, was, I was a teacher, teaching uh, full-time at a local Christian school down the road. And every year, this school puts on a retreat. It's a retreat for sixth graders. It's like a a rite of passage, they, they go away for a week as a class, they do team building, service projects to help unify the class, uh, to send them off into seventh grade the next year. Uh, and, and one of the events they do at the sixth grade retreat is they do uh, like a low ropes course, like a team building type exercises. And, and we were there at this exercise, and I was a teacher, not a student, so I was sitting in the golf, court, uh, golf cart, you know, watching them do it. And the last event of the day was this probably 12 to 14 foot wall with a platform behind it. And the coach was up at the top uh, telling the students the goal of the activity. The goal of the activity is for all the students who are one side of the wall to get over onto the other side of the wall. So there are the, all these sixth graders, 11-year-olds standing there real short at the base of the wall. They're, they're high school counselors, a little bit taller, stronger, all strategizing about how to get over this wall. And so they, they did it right. They got probably the, the strongest and the biggest guy. They lifted him up so he could grab a hold of the top of the wall, and he just muscled himself up. 
got over on the other side of the wall. And one by one, the students started being lifted up, grabbed, hold the strong student up top and pulled over the wall. And it worked perfectly until the last student. Now, the right strategy would be that you get another good athlete to be the last one who can then run at the wall, kind of run up and jump and grab a hold of the hand of the person up top. But he wasn't quite strong enough. Maybe it's because he, he worked too hard at getting everyone else over the wall, but he just he couldn't do it. So he was left at the base of the wall, running, jumping, reaching, not reaching it. So I'm sitting there over on the golf cart thinking this activity is about to fail. Like everyone is supposed to get over the wall. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm young. I'm like 29, 30. I'm decent shape. I bet I can do it. So I go over there and I help this last student over the wall and I go back and I begin to run and I realize and I remember even in my best of days, I had no vertical whatsoever. <laughs> and, and so I run and I hit that wall and I jump and I barely scrape the fingers of the guy and automatically I'm like, this is a disaster. <laughs> All my sixth graders are over and they're just looking at poor Mr. Watson stuck on the other side of the wall. I was not strong enough. I was weak. But also on the golf cart, there was another guy, probably, sadly, like 10 years my senior, who had me by five inches, and he was in shape. His name was Ben Ray. So Ben Ray gets up, and he goes over there, and he takes me in my shame and helps me over <laughs> the wall. And then he easily, Ron jumps up, grabs the hand of the guy up there, and gets over too. I was weak. And I had to have somebody who is strong come alongside of me and help lift me up. Paul is saying that if we are going to have unity of the body of Christ, that we have to have people of strength, people of maturity in their faith to come alongside those who are new, who are struggling in their faith, to strengthen them. When we talk about the failings of the weak, we're talking about the sin that's in their life. You know, oftentimes... We don't, like to, we don't like to say it. We almost want to just act like when everybody comes to church, we're all on this level playing field and we're all of equal maturity. But that's not what Paul says here. He's saying in the body there are some who are strong and some who are weak. And he tells us over in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, this is what Paul says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is saying that we who are strong have an obligation to come alongside of those who who are not as strong to help them in the faith. This means a couple different things. One, it means we have to have humility. When I was at that wall... Humility wasn't an option. It, it just happened. I had to be humble, right? Because I couldn't do it myself. We, we have to be humble, realizing that every now and again, often, we're going to need people to come alongside of us to help us along in the faith. But this also means that if you count yourself to be mature in the faith, if you count yourself to be strong in the faith, you have an obligation to God to show up 
You have an obligation to God to be involved. You have an obligation to God and to the body of Christ to come alongside other people to help them along in their faith. The way we have that set up in this church, uh, the way it works is we, we do it through small groups. where We try to have mature people in the faith leading those small groups, other mature people in the faith coming alongside of them to help them lead that group, and everyone else joining together. And we ought to be bearing each other's failings. We ought to be bearing each other's weaknesses. The way, in fact, we're just going to do like a brief small group training right now. Uh, August 20th, we're having our registration. We should have like 500 people sign up that day. That's awesome. Uh, So just so you know, when you go to a small group or if you're leading a small group, here's some things that should happen. You should go meet with your group. There should be prayer. You should be in the Word together. And as you're reading the Word, it's not a, a cold, dead document that you're reading, but it is, it, it is the Word of God that the Spirit uses to transform your life. So since that is the case, what we believe is that there should be life application, where you read the Word and you say, this is what God is calling me to do as a result of what His Word has said. So what do you do? In your groups, before you leave your group, you say, all right, we need some life application. How are you going to live differently in light of God's Word? And so I tell, I tell our group leader a couple of things. One, I say, you've got to make your application specific. If I just go out and I say, man, you, you need to love your neighbors, you love yourself, it's a very generic application. And you know what we do with generic applications? Absolutely nothing. We say, yep, that's true, that's good, and then we forget all about it. But if you say, well, God's word said I ought to love my neighbor as myself. Therefore, I have this neighbor across the street that really needs help in this specific thing. And this week, I need to help them in this specific thing. You make your application specific. And the way your group helps you in your faith to bear with you in your failings is that very next week, everyone else should remember what that application was for you. And one of the things you should do in your small group is you should say, hey, how did it go with your neighbor? Were you able to help them in that project that they had? And and you, you hold one another accountable. Or it might be that your application is, I have this sin in my life where I'm struggling with. The next week or throughout the week, there ought to be a phone call or you're seeing them at the group the next week you say, man, have you been trusting Jesus in this area of your life? We can talk all day about unity and about how we ought to be one and about how we ought to bear with the failings of the weak, but if we don't have a way to do that, we're, we're, we're not going to. So the way that we do that is through small groups, through holding one another accountable. And guys, this is hard work. It's hard to bear with the failings of the weak. It's hard to bear with the failings of those who are strong. It's hard because it calls us to be selfless. He says here in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. What he is saying is we have to live our lives. We are not seeking to please ourselves. We have to live our life not for our own comfort, but we have to put ourselves out there looking to other people's interests, 
other people's desires, trying to help other people in their problems. And that puts us out of our comfort zone. But that's what Christ is calling us to do. That is how we have unity in the body of Christ. The second thing we see is the foundation of unity. Why is it that we ought to be a people who are unified? We see this in verses 3 through 4. Let's, let's read those verses. Um, For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What we have here are two foundations for unity, why we ought to strive for unity. One is the example of Christ, that whenever we look at the life of Christ, what we see is someone who did not seek his own pleasure, who did not seek his own desires, but rather submitted himself to his Father's will, who rather received the reproaches that people offered to God, those reproaches fell on Jesus. This verse is talking about how Jesus himself took the sins of the world upon him. Where it says in 2 Corinthians, he said, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus who knew no sin took our sin upon him to become, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is showing us the example of a, of a servant-heartedness, of how we ought to serve one another. We see this very clearly also in the book of Philippians. It's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, um, so I just want to read part of it. So go ahead and flip over. It's on page 980 in the Pew Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. And it's a parallel passage. Whenever we're reading the Bible, we're always looking for what else the Bible says about that subject. It's, it's a cross-reference. Uh, so this, this Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, is a great cross-reference where Paul is expounding on this idea of Christ, our example. He says this, verse 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Sounds a lot like our passage in, in chapter 15 of Romans. Verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen. What we have in this passage is a picture of, of how Christ gave of himself for the unity of the body. He served his Father and he served his people by putting other people as more important than himself. We talked earlier about the hardest day of Jesus' life, even on his hardest day. You, you know how it is. When I have a hard day, 
I want to be really selfish. I just want to, like, kick back on the couch and say, kids, like, it should be Lord of the Flies out there. I don't care. I just want to be alone, right? That's what I want to do on my hardest day. But on Jesus' hardest day, that's not what he did. On Jesus' hardest day, he stepped out. And he said, I am going to serve. So in that room filled with the tension that the disciples had, when nobody wanted to become the servant and wash everybody's feet, what did Jesus do? He stood up. He wrapped a towel about himself. He got on his knees with a basin. And one by one, he washed the disciples' feet. As I have served you, so you must serve one another. Who are you serving? Where are you serving? You ought to be serving wherever you spend your days. Know this, that when you became a Christian, and Christ became your king, and you've entered into his kingdom, all of your life has been sanctified. All of your life has been made holy. And this is what I mean. Oftentimes we think our worship is what we do on Sundays. But your worship in Christ is much more than that. Whenever you clock in at your job, you're not just clocking in to a place where you pay the bills. You're clocking into your worship service. When you get home from your day, or if you're home all day long with your kids, your work at home is an act of worship. It is how you serve one another at your job. It's how you serve one another at your home. It's a way for us to say this is a place where Christ is king. This is a place where God's kingdom is taking root. Your life is holy, not just on Sundays. Your life is worshiped, not just on Sundays at this place. This place reminds you that the rest of your life is where worship also takes place. Who are you serving? Where are you serving? Your job is your worship. Husbands, wives, your spouse, and serving them selflessly to help them to become like Christ is an act of worship. Parents, how you give to your children and serve your children is part of your worship. And when I say serving your kids, I'm I'm not talking about like being at their beck and call and giving them everything they want. I'm talking about disciplining them. That's an act of service. Whenever you correct their behavior and tell them how they ought to live their life, you are serving them, pointing them to a God who has standards. We serve at our work, with our co-workers, our neighbors, in our marriages, parents of their children. And if you're single, you ought to realize that God has given you a gift. He is, the Bible says that you are like Paul, who was unmarried, who did not have the distractions and the responsibility of wife and children, was able to dedicate his life to the kingdom of God. Utilize that gift that God has given you. Whether it's for a season or whether it's for your entire life, view it as a gift. But we as God's people ought to be a people who serve. There's a foundation of unity that God has given us and has pointed us to in Romans chapter 15. I'm going to fast forward ahead to our third point here. I always run out of time. I always spend too much time at the beginning. It's all right. 
We're working together here. All right, so our, our final thing we see in, in Romans chapter 15 regarding unity is we have, we have the work of unity, of being selfless, of bearing with each other's failings. We have the foundation of unity, which is Christ himself. And also, if you read on, it's the word of God. That's also our foundation for unity. But then we also see in Romans chapter 15 the goal of unity. What happens when we are unified? We see this especially in, in verses 5 uh, through 7. Let's, let's read that aloud. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul highlights in his prayer for the church in Rome the goal of unity. He said, may God grant you unity that you may live in harmony so that with one voice you might glorify God. What is the goal of being unified? What is the goal of us giving of our lives to serve one another? What is the goal of bearing each other's burdens so that God might be glorified? How is God glorified? He's glorified in the unity, but our unity is pointing to something greater. Our unity, our serving of one another, is pointing to the fact that Jesus' testimony is true. And when Jesus' testimony is shown to be true, you know what happens? People believe. And that is everything after from verses 8 through 15. He's talking about how when the testimony of Jesus was proven to be true, the Gentiles, the nations, came to believe in Jesus. They became a part of the body of Christ. Our unity ought to be a signpost pointing to Jesus, saying he is real and his testimony and his sacrifice is true. Why don't you join us? Why don't you become a part of our body? Welcome others, Jesus said, as Christ has welcomed you. We see this back in John chapter 17. When Jesus was praying for his church to be one, he said, Father, I ask not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Whenever people come together in one place, their differences are supposed to divide them. The color of our skin is supposed to divide us. The size of our bank accounts are supposed to divide us. Who we vote for is supposed to divide us. And the world fully expects that when you have a diverse people coming together, there ought to be division and confusion. But when we who are different come together with one voice and in harmony and in accord with Jesus Christ, it is evidence that God is in our midst. 
May we, as we live out our faith in Colleen, Texas, be a signpost to our neighbors, and to our co-workers, and to the world that Jesus' testimony is true. Let us pray. Father, your truth endures forever, and your truth is for us today. Father, where we have shown to be seeking our own way, pushing for our own desires, Father, may we repent of that attitude. Where we, Father, have been pushing other people away and secluding ourselves for our own comfort, may we repent of that attitude, and may we, Lord, be in community with one another so that people can bear with our failings and so that we can bear with theirs, serving one another in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.